Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Awesome. Well, hey, it is good to have you at church this morning. As my wife mentioned, it would be an absolute honor to have you join us for Discover Afterwards, especially if you've been coming to the church just for a few weeks and you're like not sure if this is home yet or if we're your people. Uh, just so you know, we want to be your people, um, especially if you're not weird. We would love to be your people. We try to keep all the weird people elsewhere, but um, no, it's, it's an honor to have you. And Brian, I don't know if you're back. In the, are you back? Brian, congratulations, man. What an amazing. Love you, sir. Well, hey, uh, we are going to jump into the word here in just a second, but we're going to switch things up today. Um, I, uh, I've been feeling a, a little different about the sermon this morning, and I'll share a little bit about that before we jump in. Um, if you have been coming to our sprightly 23-week-old church uh, for any length of time, um, you know now that we are, or we try to do our best to remain pretty sensitive to what God's saying and where the Holy Spirit's leading. And, uh, you know, we've said this a number of times from the stage, but we don't allow a predetermined agenda to dictate what our service looks like. If God is trying to move in a different direction or the Holy Spirit's saying something, then we try to tap into that and go, okay, God, what do you want to say right now? Uh, and uh, today's going to be one of those Sundays where we kind of tap into what we feel like the Holy Spirit is saying in this moment instead of just steamrolling over it and uh, moving on with the regularly scheduled plan. And I don't want to make anybody nervous. We, we do plan, okay? Like we, we, we like we are strategic in nature. But at the end of the day, I don't want anybody to walk out of a room on a Sunday morning and go, man, I encountered a really good plan today. I, you know, I, I encountered a really good strategy today. You know, I, I heard some good songs today and some B-minus preaching today. Like, that's not what we want when people leave here. None of that stuff changes people's lives. We want people to walk out of this room going, I encountered Jesus today because only Jesus can transform people's lives. And, uh, and so today we're going we're gonna to flip it up a little bit. Um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know we've been in a series in the book of James entitled Practical Faith. And uh, it's been awesome and there's been some great sermons. Uh, and and our, our plan today was to go through James chapter 2 in this really encouraging scripture that says, faith without works is dead, so start serving Jesus. Um, Super encouraging, right? Yeah, so uh, we'll talk about that next week. But today, um, I want to tap into what I believe is kind of a, a kairos moment or a kairos word, if you will, for our church. If that term is unfamiliar to you, kairos is a Greek word, and it means a window of opportunity, a moment in time. Um, unlike chronos or chronological time that just keeps on ticking, uh, kairos assumes that an opportunity can be missed if you don't tap into it. Uh, this window could pass you by. Let me ask today, how many of you, if you could go back to the 1980s and buy Apple stock, you would, okay? That was a moment that has passed. How many of you were not alive in the 1980s? Okay, okay, never mind. Uh, let's try this. Um, how many wish that you could go back to December of 2017 and sell all of your Bitcoin when it was at 20,000? Yeah, okay, now we're, that's a different demographic. I got to remember who I'm talking to here, yeah. But those are windows of opportunity that have passed. They're, they're not here any longer. And as you follow Jesus, and the longer you're on this journey, here's what you'll discover. There are moments in time and windows of opportunity where God invites you to step into something that if you're not careful, you could miss it. If you're not careful, it could pass you by. And I really believe we are in one of those seasons right now as a church. Yes, I know we're young. We're six months young. But, but I believe that God is issuing an invitation to our church that I want to take him up on. 
Uh, I've been preaching sermons long enough now to uh, know that I've got a bit of a rhythm when I prepare them. And um, this last week, as I was getting ready on Tuesday to prepare James chapter 2, I just felt like I couldn't get any traction on the sermon. It was just like banging my head up against a wall after four or five hours. And uh, usually that is an indicator to me that what I want to say and what God wants to say are in conflict. And, uh, and so I, I didn't think much of it, and I showed up here on Tuesday night for our pursuit gathering, which was incredible, by the way. Next one, March 19th. Please come out and join us on a Tuesday night to worship. Uh, but I went home, and I woke up the next morning, and I, as I do every morning, I was spending time with Jesus in my office and praying. I'm like, hey, God, you know, these are your people I got to talk to on Sunday. Like, like, you should probably say something to them, and I have no inspiration right now from your word. What's going on? And I, I felt the Holy Spirit gently nudge me and just say, hey, remember what happened last Sunday during worship and how you spent like an extra 10 minutes in worship and it felt like that and you just felt like my presence in the room? Hey, remember Tuesday night when you guys were singing out this declaration about wanting to see me face to face? That's special. That's unique. There's, there's a, a window opening to your church right now that, that I'm inviting you into a greater understanding and a greater depth and a greater experience in your worship. Will you take me up on it? And so today, um, instead of just going with the plan and talking about James chapter 2, I'd like to, if I could, take God up on his invitation. And I want to talk to us a little bit about worship today. I want to step into a deeper understanding and a greater experience in our worship today. I want us to encounter all that God has for us in worship. And specifically, here's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the weapon of worship. How your worship can actually be used as a weapon against the enemy. So, public service announcement. We interrupt your regularly scheduled sermon series to bring you the weapon of worship. Are you guys up for it today? Awesome. Uh, if you got a Bible, open it up to the book of Second Chronicles of Narnia, uh, chapter 20. (laughs) And uh, it's not really called that for anyone who's new to church. They're like, oh, (laughs) all right. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20. And I'll give you a bit of a framework so that we're all on the same page and then we'll read. Um, At this time in history, a guy named Jehoshaphat uh, is the king of Judah and he's a pretty good king. Uh, You could say he's um, so fat. Uh, Jehoshaphat. Okay. Dumb Bible jokes, whatever. P-H-A-T, by the way, just to be clear, uh, which means something completely different. Anyway, he's the king of Judah, and he's doing a good job. He's doing his best to serve God. He's ridding the land of idols. He made a little mistake, but, you know, he asked for forgiveness, and it all worked out. And things are going well for this guy. Uh, there's, there's kind of peace with all the enemies around him, and things are, things are sitting well. But one day, he's hanging out in his, in his castle, tabernacle, wherever he's at, and he's enjoying himself, and a messenger comes running in to give him some bad news. He says, hey, king, um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the armies of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and those from Mount Seir, they, they've kind of allied together, and they're headed this direction with one intention. They want to kill all of us. They're here to take over Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat freaks out. He's like, ah, what are we going to do? So he calls all the people together and all the nobles together. And he says, hey, we need to pray. We need to fast. We need to ask God for help. Because honestly, this, this army is much larger than ours. If we try to fight this battle on our own, we are going to lose. So we need to seek the help of Almighty God. So the whole nation begins to fast and they pray. And as they're praying, they have this pretty incredible prayer. It's simple, and I would highly recommend it if you're in a situation where it feels like uh, the odds are stacked against you. He says, God... The enemy who is coming against us is greater than I, and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
We're, we're looking to you for help because we can't fix this one on our own. And as they're praying, this guy by the name of Jehaziel comes in and he says, hey, I have a word from God. As you're praying, here's what God said to me. He said, hey, tomorrow go out against that enemy and you can fight because, listen, the battle you're about to fight is not yours, it's God's. And I will be with you and I will defeat the armies on your behalf. So this stirs up some faith and everyone's like, we're going to take them. This is going to be incredible. And everything seems awesome until they hear the battle plan that God has in mind. Okay? Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20 says this. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. On the way, Jehoshaphat stopped and said, listen to me, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Pause. I was never in the military. But this is a terrible battle plan, all right? Like, consider this for a moment. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Get all the musicians together. You know the guys that have probably never lifted a weight in their life, don't know how to operate a weapon? The gaunt ones with the skinny jeans and the tattoos? Get those guys, send them out in front of everybody, and, and we'll see what happens. Like, this is a terrible battle plan. No offense to our musicians on stage today, by the way. You guys are great and buff and you're awesome. But, like, if I was a military commander, this is definitely a poor strategy for victory. Send out the singers. They're, gonna, they're awesome. Okay, verse 22. As they began to sing this song, at that very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to fight among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies at Mount Seir, and they killed every, uh, and killed every single one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were the dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found uh, vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days to collect it all. On the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord. It's still called the Valley of Blessing today. Come on, isn't that an incredible story? I want to take this story... And I want to talk to us today about how worship can be the most effective weapon in a season when it feels like your enemy is surrounding you and the odds are stacked against you. Will you pray and we'll jump in. Uh, Jesus, we love you this morning and uh, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that last Sunday we had an incredible time in the presence of Jesus. Last Tuesday we had an incredible time in the presence of Jesus. And here we are again today experiencing your nearness and your presence in a way that can transform our lives. God, I ask that this would be a church where we welcome your presence, where we sing in the midst of insurmountable odds stacked against us, and where we understand that worship is one of the greatest weapons you have given us to fight with. We love you today. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do. I thank you that captives are going to be set free today, that those that are far from you are going to come close today. Those that are addicted are going to find freedom today. Those that are sick can find healing in you today. God, we believe for supernatural things as we call out to the God 
that can shift everything in our favor. We love you. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Come on, everyone said, amen. Okay, it's a little quiet in here today, okay? You can, you can interact. All right, let's have some fun. Um, there are two groups of people in the room today. And I think all of humanity falls into these two groups. And you'll know which one you are in just a second. Uh, because one group will cheer and the others will shamefully stay quiet. Um, there are those who dance at weddings. And then there are those of you who sit on the sidelines and judge everybody who's dancing at the wedding while you secretly desire to jump out and be out there with them. But the excuse is, oh, I just don't dance, which never stopped that 57-year-old Betsy aunt of yours who's out there just enjoying herself with the rest of the teenagers. But I digress. Um, there are, yeah, two different kinds of people. And often, those people find each other and end up in relationship together. I don't want to call out any names today, but you might be in relationship with somebody today, and it is a constant struggle every single time you go to a wedding because one of you wants to dance, Brandon and Samantha, and the other one <laughs> just wants to sit on the sidelines. It is one of the great divisions in society, absolutely. Uh, I, I bet you'll never guess which one I am. Um, I have a photo just to, to help you out though, if you'd like. Uh, go ahead, Taylor, put that one up there for me. Yeah, that's me at a wedding. Um, now, this photograph was taken while I was an intern director and a youth pastor. And if you zoom in a little bit further on this photo, you'll find one of our students who is very concerned about what her youth pastor is doing. Go ahead and put that one up. Yeah, there's her face right there. <laughs> She's like, um, I thought you were a pastor. Okay, take it off the stage. I love to dance at weddings. True story, a friend of mine, Rich Harris, and I, uh, for a while we were seriously considering becoming available for hire for weddings to be the guys that instigated the dance floor. Like... I just, I felt like every wedding needed that guy and I was willing to be that guy, all right? So if you're getting married anytime soon and I'm not officiating your wedding, just invite me, okay? I will light up your dance floor for you, okay? It'll be, and I'll be completely sober. It'll be awesome. Just throwing that out for consideration. Yeah, I, I love to dance at weddings. Uh, it's the best. But my, my favorite moment on the dance floor at a wedding is when um, that song comes on. Like the song, whatever generation you're from, that like lights up the dance floor and everybody loses it collectively all together at one moment. As soon as the beat drops, everyone's like, oh, turn down for what? Yeah, and then they just start going crazy. Yeah. Like that moment is hilarious to me at every single wedding because like everyone loses their salvation. Nobody cares anymore. They're just like, ah. It's great. Pick your song, the wobble, the cha-cha slide, you know, they're all at every single wedding these days. Um, but I was recently at a wedding, and, uh, and when I was there, uh, I was not on the dance floor, I was not looking judgmentally at those that were, but I was having a conversation with somebody that I hadn't seen in a while, and that song came on at the wedding, and as that song came on, I think it was actually turned down for what, uh, <laughs> which I can neither confirm nor deny that my children love. Um, but as that song came on, I'm standing off to the side of, of the dance floor talking to this guy, and everyone just starts losing their mind. And I'm looking at the dance floor at, you know, Christians who are dancing like heathens. And I had this thought, I'm like, isn't it incredible that a song can have that much control over an atmosphere? That like a sound, a simple sound, can completely change the way people act, the way people feel. Like in one moment, a song can shift 
everything. Think about it. You could be having the worst day of your life and you're driving in your car and maybe life's just falling apart and you turn on the radio and if that like Pharrell song comes out, because I'm happy, like within a couple of minutes, you're just going to be like, you got to smile. You can't not smile. Or everything is awesome. Like you're going to sing along and enjoy it. Or when you wake up in the morning and you don't have enough energy to go work out, you don't just go work out, you know, and start lifting weights in silence or like to classical music, unless you're a serial killer, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like that's freaky. What do you do? You turn on like something to shift the atmosphere. You turn on the hip hop, you turn on the 80s hair metal, whatever it is for you, like you just go for it. A song has the power to completely change an atmosphere. It can shift everything. And if that is true in the natural, then it should not be a surprise to us that the same truth exists in the spirit. That a song can actually shift things in your favor. That a sound can completely change an atmosphere. A song has the power to release the prophetic. Elijah called for a minstrel and said, I believe I have a word from the Lord. Let a minstrel play so that I can prophesy. A song has the power to lift oppression. King Saul asked David to come and play the harp so that the oppressive spirits around him would leave. A song has the power to set the captive free. When Paul and Silas were inside a prison cell, as they lifted their voice, all the chains fell off, not just in their life, but of the lives of every prisoner that was surrounding them. A song can be powerful. And as it pertains to the chat today, a song can be a weapon. A song can wage war against your enemy. A song is one of the greatest weapons that God has given us in the face of opposition. But I think it is perhaps one of the most underdeployed weapons in the body of Christ because most people don't understand how powerful a song can be. And listen, I'm not just talking about uh, worship in the context that there's many examples of it in Scripture. You know, yes, you can worship over your home. Yes, you can worship, according to Romans chapter 12, with your whole life. I'm talking about a group of people gathered together in a room, lifting up their voice in unity, declaring the goodness of God in an atmosphere like this. That's the kind of worship that I believe God can use as an effective weapon against the enemy. But, but we don't use it because we, we don't understand it as often. Like, like, worship can be a lot of things to a lot of people. When we walk into a gathering like this, and please don't feel any condemnation if this is you. I'm just, this is in, present in every single church across the country. Um, worship for some people is nothing more than the warm-up for the rest of the service, right? It's like, okay, we'll let the young people up there, you know, do their song and dance, and then we'll get to the real spiritual stuff, you know, when the guy talks about the Bible. Okay. For, for some, worship is the, portion of the service that we sort of avoid. And we're like, well, it's not a big deal. I'll just, I'll miss the first couple of songs. Brunch ran a little bit long and, you know, we'll get in there for the real church part of things. Oh, it's quiet. Okay. Um, like, like worship is, is not mandatory to a lot of people. It's not as important as the real spiritual stuff. But listen, worship is probably one of the most important things we do when we gather together in a setting like this. 
Like, this is cool, preaching the Bible and sharing the word of God and people coming to, yeah, this is important. But man, I can't fight a battle for you. I can't defeat an enemy for you. That happens in the context of worship. Worship is warfare. And I know we don't refer to it like that often, right? Like when you're inviting somebody to come to the Father's house for the first time, you're not like, you know, it's great for the first 25 minutes, like we do some warfare. And then like, you know, someone gets up and does a little transition. We greet each other. And then, you know, the guy preaches. Like that's a weird way to sell church for sure. No, no one's at home like painting battle paint on their faces. Like I'm going to worship. It's going to be great. <laughs> do push-ups before the service. <laughs> but that's exactly what's happening in the spirit. Warfare is taking place every time we lift our voices and we begin to declare the goodness of God. Let me remind you today, we are in the midst of a battle. There is a spiritual battle taking place. If we could peel back the curtain and see into the spirit today, we would begin to see angels and demons fighting for your life and fighting for this city and fighting for your future and fighting for your family. We are in the midst of a battle. And the greatest weapon, or one of the greatest weapons we can deploy in that battle is something as seemingly ridiculous as a song. Lifting our voice and worshiping our king. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They don't make sense. Like, to fight by song makes no sense. But it's exactly what God has prescribed for the battles we're facing. And so here's what I want to do today. We're going to go back into this historical account of what took place. And I want to draw a couple of thoughts out of this and talk to you about how your worship can be warfare. What happens when we fight with worship? So the first thought I want to explore is this. Uh, worship has the ability. Where is it at? Here we go. Hold on. There we go. Worship has the ability to confuse the enemy. Worship confuses your enemy. Come back to the story real quick in Second uh, Chronicles 2.22, or 20.22. It says, from the very moment they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. Not fighting against their adversary, but fighting among themselves. I love this picture. When it made no sense to sing, as they lifted their voice, Instead of the battle taking place between the two parties, we would have assumed, the enemy starts a civil war. They begin to fight against each other. Like this, this strategy didn't make sense, but when, when they began to sing, the enemy didn't fight you. He didn't fight against your situation or against your family. He begins to fight himself. Listen, one of, the, one of the weirdest things that happens when we worship, one of the greatest confusions of the enemy is when you offer up illogical worship. When worship does not make sense for your situation. When you begin to sing in the face of conflict, in the face of confrontation. Listen, when worship almost feels like salt in the wound of what you're facing, that confuses your enemy. He's like, this makes absolutely no sense to me. When you worship despite a diagnosis, when you worship in the face of lack, 
When you worship despite your marriage falling apart or despite the failure in that class and the delay on your future, but you come into the house of God and you say, you know what? I'm gonna just lift my hands and I'm gonna lift my voice and I'm gonna sing. It is a head scratch to the enemy. He doesn't understand it. He wants to silence your song. He wants to keep your mouth shut because he understands that if you begin to sing into that atmosphere, the demons themselves will begin to fight within their own ranks. So, so, so let me ask you, um, have the, has the enemy silenced your song? Or has your situation silenced your song? Uh, there's this really interesting psalm in the Bible. It's Psalms chapter 136. Uh, and I, I've read it many times, and it's always been perplexing. Excuse me, 137. It's perplexing to me. But uh, I want to read this out, and I want to camp on this last line for a couple of minutes here. Psalm 137, 1 through 4, it says, Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept as we thought of Jerusalem. This is the Israelites talking about their newfound captivity in Babylon. They'd been carried away because of their disobedience, and now they're in Babylon back at the hands of their captors. It says, We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of the poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem, they said. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? Translation, how can I sing at a time like this? How am I supposed to sing facing what I'm facing right now? Have you ever been standing in a worship service before and that punk worship leader on the stage is like, come on, just lift your voice. And you're like, no, I can't sing right now. I just woke up. <laughs> I didn't even have my coffee. I want you to really lift your voice. Just you wait. All right. I'll sing when I'm good and ready to sing. Like, how could I sing at a time like this? How am I supposed to sing when my family is falling apart? How am I supposed to sing when the doctor just told me what the doctor just told me? Like, that seems like it makes no sense. But when you have the ability to lift your voice in that moment, listen to me very carefully. Your declaration can destroy the enemy's intention for that battle. Your declaration can destroy the enemy's intention for that battle. Horatio Spafford was a Presbyterian minister from Chicago. He'd established a very successful legal practice as a young businessman and was a devout Christian. Among his close friends were several evangelists, including the famous Dwight L. Moody, also from Chicago. Spafford's fortune evaporated in the wake of a great Chicago fire of 1871. Having invested heavily in real estate along Lake Michigan's shoreline, he lost everything overnight. In a saga reminiscent of Job, his son died a short time before his financial disaster, but the worst was still yet to come. Desiring a rest for his wife and four daughters, as well as wishing to join and assist Moody and Psyche in one of their campaigns in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to unexpected last-minute business developments, he had to remain in Chicago, but he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead as scheduled. He expected to follow in a few days. On November 22nd, the ship that his family was on was struck by an English vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors were finally landed at Cardiff, Wales, and Miss Spafford called her husband. I alone survived. Spafford left immediately to join his wife. 
While on the ship, he was informed by the captain of the vessel as it sailed over the very same waters where days earlier his daughters had met their watery grave. Here on a ship passing through tragic waters, having lost almost everything he had to live for, he penned his heart's cry to paper. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the face of tragedy, passing over the waters that swallowed up his family, a man chose to worship. And that song has become comfort, peace, hope for thousands, perhaps millions of people to this day as they sing his declaration over their situation. The enemy would love to silence your song because he knows that your song is not just reserved for your peace or your freedom, but it has the ability to affect generations when you declare it out. When you worship in the face of conflict, it destroys the enemy's intentions. When you sing a song, when it does not make sense, it confuses your enemy. And when you worship in the face of whatever it is that you're facing, you can say, as Joseph said, what the enemy intended for harm, my God has turned for his good, and I refuse to let my voice be silenced in this season. And when you worship, when it doesn't make sense, second thought here, you turn barriers into blessings. Worship turns barriers into blessings. Let me explain. Uh, in this story, verse 20 says that the battle takes place in a valley called Tekoa. Uh, Tekoa, in the Hebrew, the word translated means barriers. Quite literally, this battle between Judah and Jehoshaphat took place in a valley of barriers. And the problem with barriers is that barriers limit your vision. When you are facing a barrier, a barrier is all you see. You don't know what lies on the other side of that. A barrier keeps you stuck in fear about what might potentially be negative on the other side of it. When you're facing the barrier of terminal diagnosis, you don't know if healing or if death lie on the other side of that barrier. When you're facing a barrier of infertility, you don't know if conception or adoption or nothing lies on the other side of that barrier. When you're facing a barrier of financial lack, you don't know if the dream job is on the other side of that thing or foreclosure is on the other side of that thing. Barriers limit our ability to see what's on the other side. But worship in the face of a barrier has the ability to elevate us above what we're facing and to begin to see things from God's perspective. It takes you, if you will, to a higher elevation. It gives you new perspective. You can see things a little bit differently. Or as it pertains to our story, it takes you out of the valley and it brings you to a lookout. Look, look at what this story says. It says in, in 2 Chronicles 20, 24, so when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point, 
in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they can carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days to collect it all. On the fourth day, they gathered where? In the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is still called the Valley of Blessing today. So the very location that was once named a Valley of Barriers was renamed a Valley of Blessing. Why? Because when the Israelites got to, excuse me, when the, the, the tribe of Judah got to the lookout point, they saw that God had already fought the battle on their behalf and that there was something good on the other side of the barrier and not the worst possible scenario on the other side of the barrier. It turned from barrier to blessing. Let me ask you today, what barrier are you staring at right now that seems to consume your vision and consume your thoughts and wake you up in the middle of the night? Could worship perhaps take you to a place where you're not in the valley any longer, staring at the problem any longer, but you begin to get a fresh perspective on that situation. You begin to see it from the lookout. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you before, but um, I've, I've, I've been on a plane before where uh, when you're taking off, it is raining and it is storming and it's chaotic and there's turbulence, but there comes a moment as you elevate to 35,000 feet where once you get through those storm clouds, suddenly it is clear blue skies all around you. And as you look around, you can see the storm below you, but what you're sitting in is just nothing but clear, beautiful vision as far as the eye could see. Could it be that worship has the ability to get you above your storm and get you above your turbulence and realize the very thing that was over you is still underneath your God? Come on, somebody. It's below his feet, and he's still greater than the storm that you're facing. We need a fresh perspective. We need to see things from God's vantage point. Can I tell you, I have walked into worship services countless times in my life and facing barriers and facing problems. And in one moment in worship, my perspective changes. One moment in worship, I begin to see things from a different vantage point and a different angle. And that thing that looked like a barrier before was nothing more than a blessing in disguise. And it didn't change, nothing changed, just my vision changed to begin to see it the way that God sees it. If today you are consumed with whatever you're facing, man, worship can get you to a higher elevation so that you can see things the way God sees it. Maybe your sickness is a healing testimony waiting to come that will ignite faith in somebody else's heart that is walking through the same situation. And when you open up your mouth and say, I was walking through the same thing, but God healed me, it ignites something inside of them that says, well, if God healed her, then he can probably heal me. And so I'm gonna believe for something that I didn't have the ability to believe for before. Perspective. Barriers to blessings. We need to see things the way that God sees them, and worship takes us there. Amen. Last thought, number three. Worship prophesies the victory. Worship, they're not leaving, don't worry. I told them to come up when I said that. Like, they're attacking him. <laughs> it's fine, I can take them, they're just musicians. Uh, <laughs> worship prophesies the victory. The song matters. The song you sing 
in a rough season matters. On Wednesday, uh, I called these guys and I said, hey, um, I'd like to change the set list for the service and I wanna open up with the song, Raise a Hallelujah, because I'd like to close with the same song because there's some declarations in that song that I think can bring breakthrough for people today. Why? Because the song matters. I would imagine that when Jehoshaphat stepped out onto the battlefield and told the singers, you're going first, get out there, that the singers are like, okay, well, if we're gonna have to go first, like at least give us a good song to sing, right? Like give us something that's gonna like stir us up, right? Like they're probably going through the Rolodex trying to figure out what song to sing. And this is post King David era. So there's plenty of options. There's a lot of Psalms to sing. And they're like, hey, what about this one where it's like smash the heads of your enemies against the rocks? Like, yeah, let's sing that one. That one's good, you know? Or God's gonna kill my oppressors and bury them in the grave of Sheol. You're like, okay, someone give me a, you know, a metal beat, dun, 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 dun. God break their skulls. Like that's, that's the song I wanna sing if I'm going out to battle. But they choose a completely ridiculous song. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his faithful love endures forever. Like, really? That's what you got? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Like, that, is, that song makes no sense until you understand the context. That line comes from what Jews would have understood to be the great halal, or the great hallelujah. The great halal is a collection of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. God, I just feel this right now. This is, this, this is, this is a moment of breakthrough for some people. And in that psalm, or in those collection of psalms, there are 85 declarations about things that God has already done. And it's a song of call and response. When the singer sings something like, God took away our enemies in Egypt. He delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians and he brought us into freedom. God provided for our needs in the wilderness. There's the call and the people's response would have been, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. It was a response to a declaration about something that God had already done. So when Jehoshaphat looks at his army and he says, I'm sending you out to the battlefield with a song, he instructs them to sing the response to an unknown song. He says, this line hasn't been written yet. It's a blank space. There's no sentence to describe what God's gonna do. But in the same way that you declare that God has been faithful and that he has been good, I want you to respond as if you already have the answer. I want you to respond as if the battle has already been won. God, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you, but we're gonna thank you in advance because you promised that you were gonna fight this battle on our behalf. And let me remind you today, Christian, let me remind you today, church, you already know the outcome of your situation. It might seem like it's haunting you and consuming you, but in the end, you always win. 
Your God is always greater than your enemy. Your God is always greater than your sickness. Your God can always provide for your lack. And even if it's not on this side of heaven, there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, including every demon in hell, that he is Lord and that he is supreme and that he alone fights our battles for us. He said, I want you to make a declaration before the victory as if it's already been written. Come on, somebody here today, listen. You need to stop singing a song that resonates with the pain and the problem and adjust your declaration and begin to prophesy your victory. You need to raise a song that speaks to the desirable outcome that you know your God has reserved for you. Trust me, because when the answer comes and he does set you free and he does respond the way that you were always hoping he would, you're gonna wish that you had had a song in this season that modeled what he already had prepared for you. So what am I saying? I'm saying, I want us to be a church, yes, even today, as we go out of this room singing, that makes the kind of declaration that confuses our enemy that turns boundaries to blessings and that prophesies our victory. Your life, your family, they need it. Your city, it needs your worship. The Bible says in Ezekiel that when we worship in a setting like this, that it's like our worship goes out from this place like streams and healing waters go down all the avenues and down Slode and into St. Francis and up into uh, other parts of the city and there's something that God can do with our worship that affects far more than this room. It can affect a city, it can affect a region. And I believe that that's why God has called us here. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.